Mental Podcast is a show dedicated to individuals and mental health professionals, providing support, information, and some candid conversation along the way. And now, here are your hosts, Michelle and Seth. see a live notification here so i don't either <laughs> it says we're live where are we live at god who knows <laughs> no, there oh it wait is. there it is there there it's, is. It's, it's delayed it's a little that was slow. a little bit nerve-wracking well yeah considering the evening <laughs> you know i'm giving you shit you know i am Okay, well, I think it, <laughs> I think it's time to let the shit fly. Oh, look at him copping a little attitude with me tonight. He's been spicy for the last few minutes. My wonderful, my wonderful co-host has some has <laughs> some shit to throw. Let's hear it, Michelle. No, I don't have any shit to throw. I already settled all my shit with you in the in the private sphere. So. Well, you brought it into the public sphere, so I go said ahead you copped an attitude. That's all. It. What happened don't, before don't we went live today? Seth fell asleep and missed missed a complete appointment time. Meanwhile, I'm sending multiple polo messages to him, like starting out like, "Hey, where are you? What's going on?" Followed by, "Hey, are you okay?" And finally, like, "I'm pissed. What the fuck?" <laughs> you can see her agitation. <laughs> Grow with every single polo. He's so good. <laughs> and I feel absolutely horrible because we had an interview scheduled right. with an individual by the name of Samson Latchison. And let me just tell you, I know Samson personally, and his story is phenomenal. It's it's very difficult to hear. But looking at what he's overcome is absolutely incredible. And we are still going to get his story. Just not tonight. Just not tonight. <laughs> and therefore, not in the episode for this Saturday. But it will be in an upcoming episode for sure. Because his story needs to be heard. Okay. What else do you have to say, Michelle? I don't have anything else to say, Seth. Except well, then... I, I, don't, I don't like your little attitude with me. <laughs> I don't know what attitude I have. Oh, there- you know what attitude you threw at me. You you used you threw words at me like girl and woman and he got all sassy. I did. I did get all <laughs> sassy because I'm a little upset, not at you, but at myself. I know, because but I told I you to get over that. An entire I had everything set up, I had everything arranged, and it just didn't happen. <laughs> so that's what happens when you don't sleep at night. You fall asleep during the day. It's true. <laughs> or the evening in this case. It's true. Well, to entertain us and to kick this off, Michelle. Yeah. What's your mental minute? I don't ha- I told you I don't even know what my mental minute is. <laughs> Anything that's happened this week I'm not talking about publicly. <laughs> it's just been a shitty week. What can you talk about? I've been getting up this week and all of last week. I've been getting up at four thirty in the morning to go to the gym. So I am like, I'm fading quickly right now. <laughs> so I, it, I don't know that there. That's my middle minute. I've been getting up early to go to the gym. <laughs> and how has the gym been treating you? It's like a different world that early in the morning. 
it's like all different people. Like you don't recognize anybody. Mm-hmm. You know, I mean, I have a couple friends that are there in the morning, so I'll see them. But other than that, it, it's very different. It's like going to a whole new place. A whole new world. <laughs> don't be crazy. It's still the damn Stairmaster. So. Well, I don't like that C word, but yes. Oh, you're right. I shouldn't use that word, but my okay. bad. Okay, okay, okay. Well, it sounds like you it hit was... me with your mental minute, please. I will talk for a little bit about myself in regards to my mental minute. I spit it out. I've I'm not great at relationships. That's what you keep telling me. Yeah, well, it's true. I'm not good in friendships and I'm not good in relationships. Honestly, most of the time I feel I would be better off on an island to myself. As of recently, I I have had multiple, not one, not two, three, maybe four, maybe five. Over the course of the last month, I've had about five people come out of the woodwork to let me know that they don't want me in their life anymore. And that has been hurtful. Yeah, I'm sure. And it makes me question a lot of things about myself and about what I'm doing. Because what is the definition of insanity? The definition of an insanity is doing the same thing over and over and over Uh. again, expecting different results. And the question is, that's what I'm doing. And the same thing keeps happening. So clearly, I think I might be the problem. Well, again, we had this discussion earlier. And the fact that you've had multiple people offer you the same words. Again, these are people from a while ago that you've had these long-term relationships with. You've changed a lot, especially within the last few months. And that's going to make people uncomfortable. It's going to challenge them. It's also going to point out to them possibly where the relationship had issues. And so sometimes it's okay for those relationships to go. I mean, it's, it's the ebb and flow of life. But I, I don't think that you automatically assume that you are doing something wrong. It, it's very possible that you're doing something right and they're not capable of dealing with it. Yeah, but see, every one of these situations is different. And it doesn't feel like it's because of me changing things. It seems more of just the same thing happening over again. Okay, but- you know that's not true because we've talked about several of them. I, I'm willing to go with you on the last one that you mentioned to me and say, okay, maybe you messed up there and you, you could own that. You could apologize for that. The others, no. No, well, I call bullshit. It still sucks. Uh, I get and, that. And, and that's okay to say. So I, I just, I think something that I am learning is when you start to notice trends, pay attention. Well, Sure. There's nothing wrong with and introspection. I have been noticing, and I have been noticing trends. And that's what's, that's what's had me a bit concerned. But just because there's a trend doesn't mean that it is a trend. Right. But I, if you start to notice the same things happening over and over again, my encouragement to you is to stop, look around, and see what's happening. I have just experienced some pushback, some from friends lately. There's been about five of these situations that has occurred. And it's just... It's interesting timing. Let me just yeah, put it that way. I get way. that. I get that. So that's my but mental again, minute. Okay. Well, like I said, there's nothing wrong with introspection. There's nothing wrong with examining the role that you've played in relationships or in situations and deciding, you know, if, if, if there was a better way you could have handled it. That's called growth. That's called learning. And, and that's a positive thing. 
And again, I'll, I'll reiterate that some relationships aren't meant to last, and that's okay as well. They serve their purpose for a period of time, and then they go away. I've got plenty of relationships like that. And, and I, I think that it's very normal for us to start looking for the patterns or, you know, the reasons why we're at fault. I mean, I personally, that's a good sign. It means you're not narcissistic. (laughs) You know what I mean? I think that's pretty clear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, so that's a good thing because the fact that you're willing to capitulate that you may be part of a problem is, is a good thing because it means you're willing to examine that and to possibly change. But to just say automatically that all the responsibility is yours and you're a horrible person and there's something wrong with you, those are those are negative statements that are not helpful. And I think that we have to be I think we have to be very cognizant of that. It, it it's fine to examine and change and grow. It's not okay to beat the hell out of ourselves in the in the process as though we're supposed to be perfect. Yeah. So I, I think that again, you can you can revisit those situations and kind of look at them to see where you could be better. But that doesn't mean that that'll fix the situation or that you're entirely responsible for the situation. Yeah. No, you're not wrong. But you don't believe me anyway because you're going to ruminate in it. That's what I do. I know. That's who I am. That's my <laughs> DNA. This is why we have a podcast. What are you talking about? I got it. You're just here to work out your shit. I'm yeah, on. that's all it is. <laughs> well, aren't we all? Oh, my goodness. All right. So neither one of us have had a very good week. <laughs> no. No, we haven't. So let's talk about child abuse. Yay! That sounds like oh a God. great plan. Here are your co-hosts who have nothing put together, but they're here. We have things put together. That's not the case. Well, see, I am just negative Nancy right now, and everything I, I you say are. is going to be negative. you got to stop it. And I have a bit of an attitude at the moment. So this is going <laughs> see, to... See, that's what I said at the beginning. <laughs> It's truthfully going to make for an interesting episode. But I want to just note before we even move forward into this, Michelle, if I say anything that offends you, please forgive me. And <laughs> As though I won't call you on that shit. <laughs> exactly. Also, all of the information that we're going to discuss today is actually pulled directly from Understanding Child Abuse. It's actually a textbook and right. it has been in a wonderful source of information not necessarily good reading material yeah but it's kind in, of a downer subject but but in developing an episode it's actually been quite helpful well before we get into that i want to say something though i Uh-oh. want to go back to this whole idea of of us having a bad week and this evening being difficult and all of these things i, I think that that it serves to remind people that we're people too <laughs> mental health professionals are not people that have their shit together <laughs> they just have education <laughs> You know, I mean, they have the same problems that everybody else has. They have busy lives. They make mistakes. They stumble in relationships. They get angry. They get pissy about things. We're human. We do all of the same things that everybody else does. And personally, I think it's a good thing that we bring this stuff out and that we share a lot of this publicly because I think that that, first of all, is vulnerable. But I, and, and it leaves us open to, you know, somebody having a problem with us. But at the same time, I think it also helps us really connect with people and so that they understand nobody is a city on a hill. We're all in the muck together. And that there's real help when we're all together, when we're community, when we're taking care of one another. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and so I think it's important that it's okay if we show that, hey, we don't always have it all together. Like, for, let's be for real. Most of the time, I don't have it all together, so. <sighs> I think it's uh, without... without uh without much uh 
I definitely don't. I think, I think, I think that's obvious. <laughs> you know what the problem is? I just figured out what the problem is. Me? Is it no. Because you're hosting we, a show with no. Seth Walter? Is that it? No. Stop it. Because I can no. pick off. It's because, it's because we're recording on a Thursday night. We are usually the last minute kids on a Friday night, so you have to spend all night editing. That's where we messed up. It's true. <laughs> we tried to be organized. We got to fly by the seat of our pants. Tried, tried to be organized, and Seth is like, I don't know what to do. I don't, I don't, I don't know how to do this. Wait, we I'm had telling a you, that's the problem. Interview. That's the problem. I'm guaranteeing you that's the problem. I'm used, I'm used to doing this all last minute and staying up till 2 or 3 exactly. a.m. editing. We got to go back to the norm. Room. Yeah, we got to go back to the norm. This oh, is, man. This is <laughs> no more organization for us. Well, let's get started on this because it's a big let's, subject matter. It is. And in fact, we have a lot of ground to cover today. Yeah, we do. This is an ongoing part of our trauma trauma series. And of course, last month was domestic violence. This month is child abuse. These are difficult subject matter. They're triggering and they are upsetting. And quite honestly, a lot of people can identify with some of the stuff that we're talking about. So it's it's a lot of information, but it's really serious information, but it's good information. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, I think this is more, I know we already did kind of an overview, didn't we? Yes, yeah, we that did. was the first yeah. episode. I was like, what day of the month is it? <laughs> that, well, listen, that's how I'm feeling right now. <laughs> good Lord. I couldn't remember where we were. But yeah, we've done an overview, but I think that this continues on in that vein, that there's a good amount of generalized information here with regard to the reasons why it's happening you know, the family dynamic and things like that, that play into these kind of situations. So I think that we should start there. All right. Well, let's talk about the family. Yeah. So how do you define a family? You know, I think that that's a really good question because I think it's changed so much over the years. Mm-hmm. I mean, you used to have what you was termed the nuclear family, which was basically a mother, a father and, ch- and subsequent children. Family looks very different now. I mean, now we have two moms or two dads, or we have blended families. We have children that are being raised by grandparents or aunts and uncles. We have families that live all together or are separated all over the place. So family is people that are connected on some kind of an emotional level, but I don't think it looks specifically a certain way mm-hmm. anymore. Mm-hmm. At least that's how I see it, so. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think the definition of family has changed dramatically over the last hundred years. Yeah. In in fact, I would say that each individual culture has yes. a different interpretation as to what a what it expects a family to be. Yeah, absolutely. And, and to the point that no matter what uh, the culture, society has expectations of yeah. what a family, and in some cases. You know what a family what a family needs to do, and when a family is unable to do what it needs to do, the consequences for that as well. Right. Well, and at the risk of being political here, I'm going to bring up a subject: the idea that you know we have political parties that are wrapped around the idea of family, but yet they have a very specific definition of family that doesn't include a lot of situations. Mm-hmm. And that to me is maddening because it, it's it's disallowing people to be important just because of a perceived role and telling them they're not actually a family. And and I don't think anybody gets to define that for another person. I have plenty of people in my life that I consider family that I have no blood relation with, but they're family. 
you know, and, and so I think we have to be very careful about how we're doing that and, and how we're looking at that politically. And that's a sidebar. So let's go back to the notes because that was a, a pure Michelle sidebar. So. No, I, I, <laughs> I think it's, I think it's a, a valid point to the conversation. That the, the family is, it, it does vary and there are certain responsibilities that are placed upon it and mm-hmm. expectations. Mm-hmm. Really, uh, uh, at its most basic understanding, a family refers to a group of people who live together or at least have regular contact and they're expected because of that contact or that relationship to perform specific functions, especially in reference to children that might be involved into this, into the family or the, you know, the relationship. Right. And, and again, that, that's the place where children grow up. They're, they're learning the foundations of being a functioning adult. This is where they're expected to make mistakes in an environment that's safe for them. Mm-hmm. So that as they're an adult, those mistakes don't happen when it could be more dangerous for them. So as we're discussing the whole idea of child abuse, you can see how dangerous that can be to the livelihood of a child growing into an adult year, into adult years. Right. Because it, it's foundational. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to mention that abuse can technically happen anywhere. It can happen yes. outside of the family. However, when we talk around child abuse... It is frequently within a familial context that that mm-hmm. occurs because right. we're talking about kids. Yeah. We're talking about people under the age of 18. A lot of the times it's coming from the family of origin. Right. And there's several things that we want to consider about the family. When we look at the family unit, there's several things we want to break down. And the first thing just in, in just talking about it is, in fact, the subsystems, essentially the different types of relationships within right. the family unit, because they look different. Absolutely. How a parent interacts with a child is very different than how a child interacts with a parent or how a child interacts with another child or right. how the child interacts with an extended family member. Those subsystems look different and the relationships and expectations are different as well. Right. And again, we're talking about a, a place where you're supposed to be able to explore those those connections in a healthy manner and so that that you define those better for yourself as you grow into adulthood. Mm-hmm. So we we end up with a situation in the in the situation with child abuse, we end up in a situation in which this is not it becomes ill defined. Right. So, yeah, it's and it's confusing mm-hmm. and damaging, in all honesty. It's very damaging. Yes. So I, I think that goes without saying. But. Yeah. Well, the other thing I want to mention are boundaries within, family, uh, di- within a family dynamic. Mm-hmm. Boundaries essentially define who one can interact with and how they can interact with them. This is often influenced by their cultural values, maybe even their religious values. Yeah. In many cultures, the boundary around the spouse or parent allows children access to each parent, but does not allow that child to interfere with the relationship between the parents. Right. Did that make sense? Yeah, I think so. I think I understand what you mean. And I think that that's kind of typical. I I would say maybe that was the role in our house is that, you know, my husband and I each had interaction with our children but there's that that old thing about, you know, kids try to play one parent against the other. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, dad said I could or mom said. We never allowed for that. We always talked with one another and, and ferreted that out pretty quickly. 
So yeah, that makes sense. If that's what you mean, yeah, am I no, understanding you correctly? Exactly, okay. That's exactly what I mean. Okay. Looking at the different relationships, within those relationships are different roles. Right. And it's important to understand that roles in a family shape how people think of themselves, how other individuals see them, and even how they function or behave within the family unit. And then often when there is dysfunction, when the family is not operating at its ideal point, there's often blame that's placed right. upon the children for causing it to be dysfunctional. And the yeah, child and becomes I think, the scapegoat. Yeah, I think a lot of times kids do that to themselves as well. I know mm-hmm. that as I was growing up when there was disharmony and there was abuse in my household, when I, I remember specifically one instance when there was a separation, I, I believed I was at fault. And there was no reason for me to believe that, but I did believe that, that I had done something wrong or I had, you know, not done something right. And it was, it was playing into that, that whole separation issue. And I think that's pretty normal for kids in abusive situations. They have a tendency to, to self-identify as problematic. And of course, and I'm sure we'll get into this more later, but any kind of abuse in childhood obviously leads to a situation in which the child begins to really suffer as it pertains to their self-image and and how they see their place in the world. And so it, it, it becomes very detrimental to their mental health almost. Oh, without question. Right. Well, how do families communicate? A lot of yelling. I mean, sounds let's like, just be honest. That's <laughs> sounds like that's some personal lived experience right there. Well, you know, it's funny because I used to make, you know, I used to joke about it when I was younger, when my kids were younger, you know, you do a lot of yelling. I had four kids. It was loud in my house all the time. I was constantly trying to get somebody's attention. My kids knew I was really serious when I got quiet. Mm. When I when I spoke very quietly and got very close, then it was like, oh, okay, mom's serious. But when I was yelling, I think they think, oh, that's the normal thing. You just go on, you know. So that kind of communication has, is going on all the time, I'm sure. In a lot of households. I think it all varies. I think that's important. Sure. Oh, know. absolutely. Yeah. Right. Again, because we're going to use that word over and over. Subjective. Everything about mental health is subjective. Right. Well, this isn't even mental health technically. I mean, I, people are different and you right. interact very differently than, let's say, my mother. Of course. And you will say things that I will automatically realize are a big deal. And my mom could say the same thing. And I'm like, that's not a big deal. But then she could <laughs> do something. I'm like, oh. Right. So every person is different. But when you look into the family, it's not just what an individual says, but it's also all of that nonverbal communication as well. As you mentioned, being quiet. Mm -hmm. If that's not something that's normal. Yeah. Ears go up. Like, wait, what just happened? Yeah. The the room just shifted and changed. This is not normal. I'm used... I'm well, used to loud noises. What's I'll tell you one thing. My mom used to do something and I knew, I knew, like, you know, I would run around and get in trouble. My mom would yell and everything. But every now and then my mom, and it's bad, but she would do it. She would literally put her fist up and show me her mm-hmm. fist. And I was like, oh, shit, it's time to be serious. And that Again, that's, that is communication. It's probably not good communication, <laughs> but it is communication. Yes, it is. Yeah. Yeah. And then within the communication realm, there's also family rules. So looking beyond communication. Right. So first of all, I just want to note communication looks differently from family to family and it can vary, obviously. But then also the rules within every single family can vary as well. In fact, 
repetitive patterns of interaction that family members may develop with each other vary. Right. Over time, though, these patterns begin to be accepted by the family as a code of behavior or assumptions about how to act. Right. And these rules may be functional or dysfunctional, but regardless of how they function, <laughs> they regulate how the family communicates. Oh, yeah. I mean, I think we talked a little bit about that in, in the series on domestic violence when we mm-hmm. talked about how everybody behaves a certain way in order to not allow for this great explosion. Mm-hmm. Again, Frank, and when we had Frank on, he talked about that whole walking on eggshells thing. I grew up feeling that way, walking on eggshells. And so, yes, there there are these communication patterns that become prevalent in an abusive situation that most people may not pick up on, but that family unit understands it and the dynamic behind it. Can we talk about attachment disorder and how yeah, that let's talk flows about into it. that? Yeah. What do you think I, about attachment can, disorder? Well, I know that you had put a note in here that you you wanted to know if I had any resources on that. I I don't. It's more anecdotal. Yeah. Yeah. There's I mean, I know there's studies out there that show attachment disorder is detrimental to children's foundational growth and and their how they form relationships. Every one of us needs nurture. Every one of us needs connection. It's a basic human need. And so if that's taken away as a child and you're not given that, it actually, if I remember correctly, and I will have to go look up some of these studies because I knew they have them, um, it does lead to, lead to things in, in adulthood like depression because mm-hmm. there's there's no emotional connection anywhere. And so you, you end up with some maladaptive kids. Yeah. So it's... I think that's got to be one of the more sad things. I I can't imagine. And again, we talked a little bit about neglect as a form of abuse when we did the when we did the overview of the trauma series. We talked about neglect. And and that kind of falls into that category. It's it's the inability of of a parent or a guardian or the adult figure to actually connect with that child and to give that child what they need. Mhm. So, it's I think it's very detrimental. Yeah. Well, let, I'm going to break this down because I, I okay. actually did a little research on, okay. which I, okay. I mean, I talked a lot about attachment disorders in graduate school, but it's been oh, a hot okay. minute. So well, I have done a little research. It's been that long. It feels like it. So <laughs> family members in a, hel- in a healthy family environment, all right, where there isn't dysfunction, parents, family members provide an infant with the opportunity to bond. And that bonding is so incredibly important. Right. It's partly like when a baby is born, what's one of the first things they have the the father or the mother do? They have them hold them without a shirt on. Right. right? Yeah. Because that skin to skin contact creates a bond. It helps the child feel like they belong and it helps them bond to the parent. Right. However, when that does not happen, when the bonding does not occur, it can create all kinds of issues. One of those issues is an attachment disorder. And, and so this lack of attachment creates not only an inability to bond with others, but can also come with self-destructive behaviors, right. cruelty to others, poor impulse control, habitual lying, even an inability to discern cause from effect. So we know that at such at, at a young age, babies need to bond 
And when yeah. that does not occur, it can create serious issues down the line. Well, and then, you know, thinking about that child growing up in, in either a home that's abusive or in, in the system somehow, in the, in the social system, uh, the social service system, I'm sorry, it, it, that's just a, a continuation of that inability to connect to anybody because it's, those are short-term relationships mm-hmm. more often than not. And so there is, no, there is no connection at that level that's necessary for that child to feel secure and happy and mentally healthy. And so it just further exacerbates the problem that that's already, you know, going on inside that child. Right. Yeah. And and let's think about it. I mean, children who are part of the child protective. It's social services. Social services. Yeah. Yeah. When we talk about a child who's been in social services, we often notice that they're bounced from yeah, one part lot. of the system to another part of the system. I mean, truthfully, from home to home to home, there's no sense of security. There's no sense of this is where I'm going to be and this is where I'm always going to be. They're kind of always waiting for that shoe to drop before they get sent to the next home. I mean, it's not beyond reason to see that they could struggle with an attachment disorder. Right. I mean, that's kind of obvious. Yeah. Well, and, and you know what? I, I'm going to bring up something. I have a friend on Facebook who I've followed for years and he is such a wonderful man. I don't know if you know him or not. His name is Robert Rutherford. I don't know. him. He is fantastic and you need to know him. He actually advocates for children being taken in into mm-hmm. as foster children. He not only advocates for it, he actually lives this out. He's got 10 or 11 kids of his own that are all grown. Oh, wow. But he takes in these children now, and he has four kids right now. Every one of them has been taken in from the foster system. They were either severely addicted to drugs mm-hmm. because of a parent being addicted, the mother being addicted to drugs. They were born incredibly early, and there was no hope for them. He has taken them all, and they're beautiful. And his heart is so amazing for these kids. And... He, I'm just in awe of him always. He just got another, he just got another one the other day and Damn. I'm just in awe of him because there's not enough people out there doing this kind of stuff that would help alleviate this problem. Mm-hmm. And and so I appreciate him being very vocal about what he does and encouraging other people to do it because it is so absolutely necessary for the well being of these children to form those kind of bonds, to feel as though they belong to somebody and that they're cared for and loved. Yes. Anyway, I'm going to send you a link to his page because you need to follow him. He's amazing. I will check that out. Also, before we jump into the family dysfunction, which I know we we are moving kind of slow and we have lots of material to cover, but I think this is all good stuff. We talked about within the family rules and communication and bonding and things like that. I also want to mention rituals because every family does have their own rituals, (laughs) right? The behaviors that families may practice as a vital part of their communication. And this includes everything from their day-to-day essentials to their family traditions to their holidays to even life cycle rituals. Every family has specific things that they do. And I think that's important for us to mention when we look at the family unit. Families have different rituals and expectations. Mm -hmm. That's true. You can't make a blanket statement over family how a family is supposed to conduct themselves. You, you just can't. I mean, and that's what we were talking about at the beginning. Families look so very different now. We can't make any kind of blanket statements about family. There's essentially four main 
big areas where families fail. Now, we're going to jump into more information and we're going to get into the nitty gritty. But from the outset, there are four primary areas where families fail. They are failure to complete basic family tasks. So think food, shelter, protection, education, all of those things that you're providing for the child. When you can't, when there's an inability to provide those things, that is a, that's a failure on that end. There's also failure in dealing with changes that are associated with developmental tasks. So as we know with a developing and learning child, they're hitting developmental milestones with each year that they get older. Right. When a family is not providing the proper care, sometimes those milestones don't get met. Right. And now there are times when milestones don't get met due to some type of academic difficulty, learning disability, things like that. That's not what we're talking about here. Right. And when a child does not meet those specific milestones, oftentimes the family can become upset with that. Well, right. So let's think about the ideas of a child having some kind of illness Mm -hmm. or a learning disability or anything that disrupts what we perceive to be the norm Mm-hmm. Of, of how a child is supposed to function within a family, it's going to have effects to everybody in that family. Yes. And, and so uh, to me, that's, that's the kind of stuff that we're talking about in this section. It, it's about what disrupts the norm of the family. Mm-hmm. And it kind of goes with the next one too, the failure to deal with crises. What about it? Well, I mean, they, I mean, again, this is, this is an interruption to the norm. We're talking about illnesses or death or, you know, anything that happens in the family dynamic, somebody losing a job, even, and the notes even say it, even like a natural disaster, anything like that, that actually interrupts the norm of the family becomes detrimental to the family in some form or fashion. Mm-hmm. So, and then again, going on to the final one, it's, it's a failure to deal with societal pressures. Right. Prejudice. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, and that's got to be a big one. I mean, we, I mean, that's yeah. Those have become very hot topics. Hot topics right now. Mm-hmm. So it's again, all of these have a, an effect on the family dynamic. Because let's be honest, a lot of times, and and I think we've seen this play out a lot over the last few years within the family dynamic. Maybe not as a small child, but let's say teenagers. You will have teenagers that are going to school. They're learning certain things that that their parents don't necessarily agree with. So there's ideological differences that are mm-hmm. happening within the house, which can then cause friction and problematic relationship behaviors. Yes. And so, I mean, there's there's a lot of there's a lot of interplay in a family on any given day, and it's not hard to see how it can become problematic pretty quickly. Yeah. So. Well, let's now jump in to the real subject matter. So, so far, (laughs) (laughs) there's the foundation. (laughs) We've been talking for 40 minutes and we provided you an overview of what a family is and some of the rules and expectations within that. Well, that's important stuff, though. It is. And I don't care that this episode is long because it needs to be. Yeah. Let's now talk about the types and causes of the different forms of childhood abuse and neglect. And as we as we break this down, what I'm really hoping we look at is the why, right? The title of this episode is right. the why behind child abuse. We want to look at the reasons why these things are happening. As we begin this conversation, though, let me just 
provide some statistics really quickly. We did okay. a lot of this in the last episode. Right. But this is a different stat that I actually pulled from the Children's Bureau, which is quite interesting. In 2019, Child Protective Service agencies nationally received an estimate of 4.4 million mm. referrals. Wow. 4,378,000. And it included 7.9 million children. So that tells us for a lot of those reports, they were not just speaking about one child. But right multiple. in the house. Yeah, it was multiple kids. The national rate of screened in referrals is 32.2 per 1,000 children in the national population. So mm. that's 32%. Yeah, that's crazy. Among the 45 states that report, report both screened in and screened out referrals, 54.5% of referrals are screened in and 45.5% are screened out. So what's the difference between screened in and screened out? Meaning they take the referral. Oh, okay. Or they, they're going to do an investigation. I Someone's see. following up. Okay. So that's telling us that over 50% right. of child abuse hotline reports result in some form of investigation or action. Right. So that's pretty alarming to me. Well, yeah. I mean, the whole idea that you have, you know, 4.4 million referrals in general is upsetting. I mean, that's that's a tremendous number. Yes, it is. So, yeah, it's definitely a problem. So now that we understand that over 50% of the reports result in an action. In an action. Right. So this is telling us this is pretty serious and that this is pretty uh, common and it, it's happening every day. Right. So now let's look at the specific types of abuse and let's break down the reasons why this is happening. So the first one I want us to look at is neglect. The way that we define neglect is that it is an admission. It's an omission rather than right. an assault or, or something. Rather than doing some type of damage, it's not doing anything at all, which is resulting in damage. Right. Again, that would be disallowing that, that attachment or you know withholding love or affection, withholding cleanliness or education or any of the things. And I think we mentioned that a few minutes ago. So it it's not... Uh, it's not overtly abusive, like where we can point to it and say that person has put their hands on the child. But nevertheless, it is abusive in its in how it how it results because the child mm -hmm. ends up harmed. Right. And so let's talk about the different types because this can happen in several different areas of a person's life. Right. There can be physical neglect. All right. So this is essentially a non-organic failure to thrive, inadequate supervision, abandoning the child, refusing to provide them with health care or delaying them in getting the health care that right. they need. Right. Or maybe just not even meeting their the child's basic physical needs. Right. I think that happens a lot. And again, I know we'll probably talk about this, but actually I see it in the notes. Poverty actually yes. plays a very large role in this because you're talking about a family dynamic in which one or both parents, if there are two parents, are forced to work long hours. 
they may not be there to take care of the child, or they may be in an economic situation in the family in which they don't have enough money for food or medicine or the basic necessities of life for the child, even educational supplies, things like that. This is happening all over. And, and so it is basically neglect. There may not be malice associated with it. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that we have to differentiate there too, because in, in, the, in the subject of neglect, I think it can be situational without malice, but it's still resulting in harm. And that's the, that's the main point that we're trying to make because it becomes traumatic for the child yes. at some point. Yes. So, and I want to jump into that. But I really quick, I'm going to go yeah, ahead and lay out. Sorry, I'm I, really I jumped quick, ahead. No, well, it's fine. And I, that's right where we're going because I want to talk about that. Yeah. So, but first of all, let's just talk about the different areas of a person's life where they can be neglected. So there can be physical neglect. There can be medical, educational, emotional, and even mental health and language. Language is interesting to me. Define it. Uh, well, I'm looking at your notes. Nang- language neglect. Parents may communicate only in commands and do not read or talk to them at any length. I, I, I think that a lot of people would push back on that and say that's just a parenting style. Potentially. And that, and that you wouldn't be able to necessarily quantify that yeah, it'd type be of really, neglect. It, it would be very hard yeah. for that to result in an actionable right. result from CPS. However, it illustrates a very good point. Sure. When, ch- when adults converse with children, they are helping that child to internalize the language, which prepares them for future social relationships and arms right. them with the ability to solve their own problems. If we right. don't communicate with our children, they aren't going to learn or understand what we're talking about and therefore they won't be able to internalize and they will be further behind. Right. So it is a form of neglect. Now, is that actionable by CPS? It depends on the degree. Well, like I said, it's hard to quantify, so it it would be difficult to do that. Agreed. Um, That would be something that you would probably, that you would notice later in life as it pertains Mm -hmm. to trauma or, you know, the harm that it caused. Mm -hmm. Um, Their inability to connect with other people or to express themselves in a way that makes it beneficial for them to work or to educate themselves or any of those things, that would be maybe easier to see later on. Right. And I I also want to call out the mental health neglect. I mentioned this last week in our episode, but I want to mention it again here. Refusing to tend to your child's serious emotional or behavioral health disorders is considered neglect. Right. If you have a child who is suicidal or is in need of immediate support and you do not provide that care to the child, that can be classified as neglect. Correct. Yeah. And I think that needs to be mentioned. Absolutely. Because it's detrimental. Absolutely. And I, yeah. and I, I know that religious religion gets in there and complicates yeah. things sometimes. But like seriously, if you have a child who is struggling, please do not leave them there. Well, you know, this comes back to, again, another situation in, in that needs to be said as well, that there's such a stigma associated with any kind of mental health issue that a lot of times we try to sweep that under the rug or pretend it doesn't exist. And certainly as it pertains to our children, we don't want them to be different. We don't want them to stand out as anything negative. And so there's a tendency of, for parents to develop almost a blind spot to that kind of stuff and, and to not believe that that's their child. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have to be really careful to be observant and realize that our child is just as susceptible as anyone else 
to, to struggle with any kind of a mental health issue. And that, and again, we should be working to remove that stigma. So that is not so difficult to do. Oh, agreed. Yeah. So let's, you've already mentioned this, but I want to talk about what, why is neglect happening? Mm-hmm. Why is this occurring? And, and you've already kind of mentioned poverty, right? So economic causes, which is the first point here in my notes. Right. But that we know, we know that poverty can have a serious impact on a parent's ability to care for their children. Absolutely. However, being poor does not mean that a child is going to be neglected. Well, that's right. Absolutely. You have to differentiate there. They're not, they're, correlation and cause are not, <laughs> not synonymous. So Correct. Yeah. It, however, has a wide range of factors. Right. So simply not having money does not mean that you're not going to care for your child. But if you don't have money, resources, and all of these other things, unemployment, limited education, social isolation, large number of children, right. it adds up. And yeah, these do higher. become reasons that it could happen. They get higher. Yeah. yeah. What do you think about ecological causes? Well, I think that's an interesting thing. And again, I think it's hard to quantify. When we're talking about families looking different, we also have to recognize that areas that people live in, neighborhoods or whatever, are going to look different as well and almost have their own culture as well. Mm-hmm. So it's difficult to say, oh, well, this neighborhood looks you know, run down or whatever. I bet there's a lot of neglect here. As you said, we can't really make those associations. We can't make those assumptions. But it can, again, be another situation in which neglect is more prevalent because of, to me, having an unfriendly or a poor-kept neighborhood or something like that still comes back almost to an economic thing more so than anything. And so I kind of equate the two Mm -hmm. together. I do see that ecologically, environmentally, we're, we're talking about how a child is raised in an area. So I can see that there would be reasons for neglect, but I still think that this is another one that's kind of difficult. Mm-hmm. It um, is. You know, and certainly is not the first thing that comes to mind when you're talking about neglect as, as abuse. Right. right. And it's not something people would, autom- as you just mentioned, it's not something that people would automatically call out. Right. However, this is a big deal in that it is playing a role. Sure. In, in, in fact... The ecological view sees the individual as part of and interacting with their environment. Mm -hmm. It invites us to look at how society contributes to neglect. Well, sure. Because again, if you're going to have a neighborhood where maybe it's a, it's a, the economic foundation of that neighborhood is maybe on the lower income side, then you're going to have an area in which, you know, there, there is more frustration. There is, there is a harder way of living that it, maybe it becomes a cultural thing in that area that parents yell or, you know, discipline their children harshly or whatever, because it's accepted in one family or two families, it becomes the norm for that area. So I can see from that perspective how that would raise the incident level of any kind of an abusive situation for children because of ecological nature, ecological causes. But again, I don't know that I would jump right to that. Can I mention something really quickly that doesn't... Okay. Okay. So like, for example, here in St. Louis, okay, I live in the county. Uh, I live in St. Charles County. Mm -hmm. It's in a much, it's much nicer. Right. Okay. Like it's much, it's much, much, much nicer. If I go to a Walmart in St. Charles County 
And then I go to a Walmart in St. Louis City where I used to live. You would not even think that you are in the same state. Right. There's a difference, obviously. The amount of the type of food, the amount of food. Yeah. Totally different. The quality of food totally different and if you go into these lower socioeconomic areas you will notice there's a lot more fast food and not many nice restaurants whereas if you go into more wealthy areas you will notice you'll still have fast food restaurants but then you'll also have a lot of really nice five-star restaurants there's just a difference like even in access to basic needs like food can vary based upon the ecological component to what's happening right in that area and i'm not saying that that affects neglect impacts neglect but i d- it kind of does yeah i guess it there could does. be some reason for it sure it kind of does <laughs> another reason i want to talk about are these individual personally individualized causes because at the end of the day it really comes down to the type of it comes down to the person who's neglecting yeah and again i think you know we talked a little bit about it with in the domestic violence series but Again, we're talking about cyclical things. Right. We're talking about, a, you know, how a child is raised is how they become an adult, which then they begin to raise their children in the same way. We're creating a cycle a lot of the times that sometimes needs to be broken because it is wrong or abusive or neglectful. Mm-hmm. And and so I think that's part of it that, that has to be looked at. Yeah. And when we look at these personal individual causes these personal individual traits things that again i don't want to i don't want to like point a finger and say oh well these are all the these are all the abusers out there right. here are all the people who these are the personality traits you need to look out for i don't know if that's really helpful but in looking at danger areas mm-hmm Impulse control, which again, listen, I've got a TBI. I have the worst impulse control ever. That does not mean I'm neglecting anyone but myself. But having difficulties with impulse does increase the odds. And that's what I want to look at this as. And we're not saying these traits are exactly what is going to result in someone being neglectful, but they do increase the odds of that occurring. So impulse ridden, intellectually disabled, reactive or depressive, psychotic or substance abuse disorders, things that are pulling the parent's attention away from the child so they cannot be present. Right. Thoughts? Well, again, that last one I think has to become something that that is brought into the subject matter because I think that that happens quite a lot. Mm -hmm. The incidence of substance abuse, and we haven't done a series on that, but I assume that we, we should at some point, but substance abuse is pretty prevalent and... If if the substance itself is something that is highly addictive, a lot of times that parent is more focused on obtaining what they need rather than the child that may be waiting to be fed or bathed or educated. You know, so it it, it becomes very problematic. And that and that makes it sound so cold to say, oh, it's just very problematic. It, it, that sucks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just sucks. So I don't know. That w- that's my educated language coming out right there. It just sucks. Right. I mean, it does. <laughs> define define physical abuse. What is it? Well, I think this is the one that we all think of when we think of abuse. This is yes. any time that there are there's any kind of physical interaction that results in harm to the child. So we could talk about bruises. We could talk about welts. We can talk about broken bones, burns, 
even a smack across the face. And I know some people would argue with me on that, but all of that can be seen as physical abuse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, anything that's resulting in physical harm. Right. Now, I know that it, that the legal community says there has to be intent behind it as well. It can't be like the accident. Yeah, and yeah, again, see, this is, again, where I'm going to err to the other side because I, ra- I was raised with so much abuse. I, I go, mm, okay, <laughs> that's ticky-tack. <laughs> I am a social worker. As if I, if it's not, I don't need it proven. Yeah. I just need suspicion. If I all if I am sus, if I am suspicious, if red flags are going off, I'm right. I'm filing right. a report. Well, and, and you should anyway because here's the real the reality of it: we should err on the side of protecting the child. Yes, absolutely, one hundred percent. And and we had a situation in our house one time, and I know that my husband still gets angry when he talks about it. But the police officer actually did the right thing. My boys were outside playing. Or, playing they were the oldest one was old enough to drive and he tied a razor scooter to the back of his car and put his little brother on it and was dragging his brother around behind his car which was all fun and games until of course there was the death wobble and smack so my younger son is you know bleeding from head to toe he's damaged a neighbor sees it there's a police officer down the street she tells the police officer he comes to her house and knocks on the door and as soon as my husband opens the door the police officer pushes his way in the house yeah, because his concern is, I just saw a bleeding child go into this house, mm-hmm. you know? So he, he was right. But there's that that in immediate, like, I didn't abuse my child. How dare you? But we should err on the side of the safety of that child. That should be primary. Mm-hmm. I know that's that can be argued, but. <laughs> no, I, I mean, that's that's the role of police. I, I So I wasn't a child, but when I had my grand mal seizure uh, at Christmas Day of 2013. Mm-hmm. I was in the bathroom when it happened and my parents had to break down the bathroom door. And when the poli- when the ambulance came, they saw, you know what I mean? They, they could see from the front door, like there was stuff around. They broke in. Yeah. Cause I mean, they, they don't know what's happened. They, they don't, know they don't know what's hurt. happening. Yeah. Right. They don't know. They don't know what's going on. They don't right. know if they attacked me, I attacked them, what happened. And so right. if any time that police enter a scene and they have suspicion or there's things that don't seem right, they have a right to investigate, and I'm yeah. happy that they broke in. Well, and, and again, even school officials or teachers or counselors, or if they see situations that don't look right, it is in the best interest of the child to to talk to somebody, to, to at least bring it up. Mm-hmm. Because a lot of times, and again, I'm sure we'll get more into this later, but a lot of times children are not going to say anything. They're either afraid to or they're embarrassed there's other factors going on that are keeping them from saying something. So it has to be on the part of the adults to go, something's not right here. So let's, let's investigate it at least a small amount. Let's figure it out. Mm-hmm. So that for the betterment of this child. Yeah. So anyway. Well, and I, I have in here a paragraph about the social work community and I just yeah. feel like I need to, I, I'm just going to read that because okay. I think it's important because I am a social worker. Right. And we were taught in school to see the family as a total system, a system influenced in turn by larger and more complex systems. Thus, child abuse is defined with respect to the anticipated outcome. That is to restore in some manner the delicate balance of family continuity so that the nurturing of children can continue. It's when this is not possible 
when the family is too grossly distorted by their stressors or individual pathologies, that the placement of the child may be the only solution and in the best interest of the family. Right. And that's really all that this is about. You know, people get so fearful around children's division. I cannot tell you in working for the crisis line how many parents I talked to that were absolutely terrified about a CPS report being filed against them. Sure. But at the end of the day, as long as you're taking care of your child, CPS is not going to do anything. Like... I, I have sent CPS into situations where I felt like things should happen and nothing happens. And yeah. it's not because the CPS is failing. <laughs> well, it's they're there to, to keep the child safe. Right. And, and their main goal is to keep them with the parents if, that, if they can make it if work. If at all possible, right? If, if they can make it work, they will. Right. And so I want to just mention that because everyone gets so scared around children's division. And I'm always like, unless you are actively abusing your child the most that they're going to do is provide you with resources. Right. Like free counseling and home. Take it. Right. You know? Anyhow, well, let's talk about what do we think causes physical abuse? Well, probably a lot of different things. Uh, I, I mean, agree. I think that again, because we were talking about it a little bit ago, that, that economic variable plays into the, into this a lot of, a lot of times. Again, mm-hmm. Families that live in poverty or that are struggling to make ends meet, a lot of times there's often frustration, anger between the parents, or maybe one parent is not there anymore. There's no child support. Again, the the level of frustration rises when you're trying to cover all the bases. And of course, that's not a good reason to abuse. There there is no good reason to abuse, but- Ever. Yeah, but that is often an impetus to the abuse itself. Is mm-hmm. just that rising level of frustration over things that are sometimes out of the control of the of the family. Mm-hmm. So, I, you know, one of the things, and I see you have this in the notes here, but within this last year, there was a lot of talk about how COVID was going to affect families. Mm-hmm. Like, what what was that look for? Because you just took my line. Oh, I'm sorry. Go ahead, run with it. What about COVID and families? Well, again, because you had the the family dynamic is, of course, one in which the parents work or the children go to school. People are not together all the time. And here we ended up in a situation in which everybody had to basically be home together for longer Mm -hmm. periods of time. So, again, that whole interaction with frustration and anger and certainly living in a situation that nobody knows what's going to happen. There's a lot of uncertainty. There's a lot of fear raises that level in the house of frustration that can then lead to an abusive situation. So, and that, and that mattered in domestic violence as well. We didn't, I don't think we brought that up in domestic violence, but absolutely that was one of the things that was, that was discussed then as well is that instances of domestic violence and child abuse would actually increase because of the pandemic and the restrictions that were put on the families at the time. And this is a side note, but can anyone, can we just talk about the importance of school districts? Like kids are so safe in school. Oftentimes the school provides yeah. food, the school provides safety, the school provides supervision. A place to be out of the house. A lot of the, when without the school, these kids are at home and their parents are not used to having them at home yeah. all the time. Right. They're used to the school taking care of all of those things. Again, right still now, not a good reason. <laughs> but it is a part of the discussion because it's a, it's a reality. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, it is. 
And then I also want to just refer to the these interactional variables, which essentially I'm speaking to the interplay between the victim and the abuser. And within that, it really comes down to the relational component. So I want to play an example. Okay. The parent is upset with the child. So the parent punishes the child, who in turn, because they've been punished, becomes more difficult. Right. Right? And already feeling inept, the baby's crying, typical of many premature infants, was too much for an inexperienced mother who had no support systems. Her ability to care for her child and her delusionment at a less than ideal experience caused her to feel depressed. This further hampered her ability to parent. The baby's response to her neglect of his needs was to intensify his demand. When such a pattern begins for potentially abusive parents, it often spirals downward. Right. We also notice that diagnoses within children of ADHD, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, and oppositional defiant disorder often create very intense interactional, uh, interpersonal difficulties that may lead a parent to become abusive. Yeah, that makes sense. Well, one of the things that we didn't talk about, of course, so far is the whole idea of, again, as we're talking about the family dynamic, a lot of times we automatically assume with child abuse, we're talking about from the parent to the child. Yes. But it can be sibling to sibling Mm -hmm. or grandparent to child or aunt and uncle to child or... You know, again, we we can't lock in a definition of what child abuse is. We have to look at it and say, well, because the family dynamic is very ver- is varied, that also the instances of abuse can be varied in the same fashion. And so, I like how you put in there the abuse by siblings, older to younger siblings is often an area. And again, a lot of times I think it gets overlooked because it's just seen as a normal family dynamic. Kids fight, brothers and sisters don't get along. But there is a very real point in which it becomes abusive rather than just a part of the normal dynamic of the interaction mm-hmm. between siblings. Mm-hmm. So, And when we look at that sibling rivalry or, or the, the things that happens between siblings, oftentimes it's about power. Absolutely. Yeah. In our fast-paced, power-oriented world, violence is an easy way to take control. And children are often taking notes Absolutely. from their parents yeah, or what they're seeing on TV. Well, yeah, and we kind of glorify violence. So yes. it makes yes, sense that they pick up on that easily and they would think to employ it in, when they become frustrated or angry. And what they're getting from television, what they're getting from looking around the world, they begin to think around gender. Because oftentimes, male-oriented issues, there's a lot of male-oriented issues in today's society. Many boys mistakenly believe, and I would even say many men, uh, many men believe, they mistakenly believe that they must be in control. And that if they feel powerless, that it's going to create problems for them. And so they they put on this persona that they always have to be in control, that they always have to be powerful, and they seek to satisfy that need. The sense of power they get from being abusive makes them want to repeat that experience. It's why we see bullying in high schools and elementary schools. And I mean, it's why those things exist as well. Yeah, that makes sense. Anything else you would add to the conversation on physical abuse? 
and the reasons why it's happening. Uh, I think I think that the notes have covered it, you know, from a from an intellectual standpoint, have covered it very well. I think that within each family dynamic, there's, of course, things that are happening that may not fit into any one definition that maybe span several definitions. And but I do think that the, the number one cause of child abuse is frustration. Mm-hmm. And and I do I do also give I give weight to the idea of control as well. But frustration, because I think that more often than not, it's, it's, it's not sat down and planned. It's, it happens in the moment. Now that's not always true. I know that there are situational, there are situations in which child abuse is, is ongoing and it is because it's a power dynamic. But again, for somebody that would think I would never abuse my child, given the right set of circumstances, we're all capable. And I think that we have to be aware of that. We have to be very conscious of our own limitations. And to take care to make sure that we have things in place that help protect us from those kind of frustrations. Not only for our good, but more importantly, for the good of our children. Yeah. You know, I mean, and what immediately comes to mind with that is like shaken babies or Mm -hmm. things. It's just, it's born out of frustration. It's not because, hey, I have nothing better to do. Let me shake this child. Right. You know, and most of those parents that have done something like that, that egregious, would probably be shocked that they were capable of doing such a thing. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it wasn't intentional. I mean, it wasn't like they were out to abuse their child. They were frustrated. Well, and again, so that goes back to the the comment about intent being a part of the legal definition. Because intent is irrelevant if there's still harm done to a child. And we have to to say, okay, yes, whether there was intention or not, I acted inappropriately and resulted in the harm to my child. And that, that constitutes abuse. It does. Yeah, so... Now, we, of course, have other areas to go through. Mm-hmm. Um, this next one's going to be tough. <laughs> yeah. Now, I know that we didn't cover the entire thing today. However, sometimes that's how life works. There's a lot of information. So, I mean. We're providing a lot of information in this series. And um, I really wanted to have a lived experience story to share with you. But I'm going to be honest with you. Seth dropped the ball. <laughs> Seth Not fell the end asleep. of the world. And uh, so we're going to reschedule with our guest for a third time and we're going to get his story, whether we're going to get it. That's all I can say. Well, and again, it will go along with the subject matter that we still have to, um, to, to cover as far as the different types of abuse. So I think that that actually works out. Okay. It's not a problem. It's not problematic um, to what we're doing. I still feel bad. I know you do. I know you're still over there beating yourself up. If you find yourself in a situation where you think that you are being abused or you know that someone is being abused, I want to encourage you to please reach out to the Child Protective Services in your area. You can find their number on Google per state, and there's all kinds of things that they might be able to do to help. Just because a hotline report is filed does not mean that any action is going to be taken. And most of the time it results in actual resources and free counseling and things like that being provided to support the family rather than removing the child. In fact, we know that Children's Division only removes a child when it is absolutely necessary. And so if you're listening to this episode and you want to learn more about us or want to learn more about mental... Um, I want to encourage you, you can check out our website. It is mental-podcast.com. We also have a hotline where you can call us to bring up any suggestions, comments, questions, anything you want to share with us. 
That phone number is 314-690-5005. We also have a pretty active Facebook group. Yes, we do. And a Facebook page. So please feel free to check us out there. This podcast is available on almost every podcast application out there. Apple Podcast, sorry, well, Apple Podcast, <laughs> Spotify, <laughs> Red Circle. We're we're out we're out there. We're Pandora. everywhere. Pandora. We're we're on all the streams. <laughs> and anything else you'd add, Michelle? No, except that this is a difficult subject matter. So if you have found yourself feeling frustrated about it or triggered in any way, make sure you reach out to somebody and talk to them for your own health, for your own well-being and mental health. Make sure you're taking care of yourself. Absolutely. Until next week. Until next week.